Section 43 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 26, 1597 and 1598, Part 1. A fresh expedition against the Spaniards was in agitation from the beginning of this year, which occasioned many movements at court, and as usual disturbed the mind of the Queen with various perplexities. Her captious favour towards Essex, and the arts employed by him to gain his will on every contested point, are well illustrated in the letters of Roland White, to which we must again recur. On February 22nd he writes, quote, My lord of Essex kept his bed the most part of all yesterday, yet did one of his chamber tell me he could not weep for it, for he knew his lord was not sick. There is not a day passes that the Queen sends not often to see him, and himself every day goeth privately to her. End quote. Two days after, he reports that, quote, my lord of Essex comes out of his chamber in his gown and nightcap. Full fourteen days his lordship kept in. Her majesty, as I heard, resolved to break him of his will, and to pull down his great heart, who found it a thing impossible, and says he holds it from the mother's side. But all is well again, and no doubt he will grow a mighty man in our state. End quote. The Earl of Cumberland made, quote, some doubt of his going to sea, end quote because Lord Thomas Howard and Raleigh were to be joined with him in equal authority. The Queen mentioned the subject to him, and on his repeating to herself his refusal, he was, quote-unquote, well chidden. In March, Raleigh was busied in mediating a reconciliation between Essex and Robert Cecil, in which he was so far successful that a kind of compromise took place, and henceforth court favours were shared without any open quarrels between their respective adherents. The motives urged by Raleigh for this agreement were that it would benefit the country, that the Queen's quote-unquote continual unquietness would turn to contentment, and that public business would go on to the hurt of the common enemy. Essex, however, was malcontent at heart. He began to frequent certain meetings held in Blackfriars at the house of Lady Russell, a busy Puritan, who was one of the learned daughters of Sir Anthony Cook. Quote, wearied, says White, with not knowing how to please, he is not unwilling to listen to those motions made him for the public good. He was soon after so much offended with Her Majesty for giving the office of warden of the sink ports to his enemy Lord Cobham after he had asked for it himself that he was about to quit the court, but the Queen sent for him and to pacify him made him master of the ordinance. It is mentioned about this time that the Queen had of late quote, used the fair Mrs. Bridges with words and blows of anger. End quote. This young lady was one of the maids of honour and the same referred to in a subsequent letter, where it is said, quote, It is spied out by envy that the Earl of Essex is again fallen in love with his fairest bee, on which White observes, quote, It cannot choose but come to the Queen's ears, and then is he undone, and all that depend upon his favour. A striking indication of the nature of the sentiment which the aged sovereign cherished for her youthful favourite. In May our intelligencer writes thus, quote, here hath been much ado between the Queen and the Lords about the preparation to see, some of them urging the necessity of setting it forward for her safety, but she opposing it by no danger appearing towards her anywhere, and that she will not make wars, but arm for defence. Understanding how much of her treasure was already spent in victual, both for ships and soldiers at land. She was extremely angry with them that made such haste in it, and at Burley for suffering it, seeing no greater occasion. No reason nor persuasion by some of the lords could prevail, but that Her Majesty hath commanded order to be given to stay all proceeding, and sent my lord Thomas Howard word that he should not go to sea. How Her Majesty may be wrought to fulfil the most earnest desire of some to have it go forward, 
time must make it known but the reconciliation whether sincere or otherwise brought about by raleigh between essex and the cecils rendered at this time the war party so strong that the scruples of the queen were at length overruled and a formidable armament was sent to sea with the double object of destroying the spanish ships in their harbours and intercepting their homeward-bound west india fleet essex was commander-in-chief by sea and land lord thomas howard and raleigh vice and rear admirals lord montjoy was lieutenant-general sir francis vere marshal several young noblemen attached to essex joined the expedition as volunteers as lord rich his brother-in-law the earl of rutland afterwards married to the daughter of the countess of essex by sir philip sidney lord cromwell and the earl of southampton the last whose friendship for essex afterwards hurried him into an enterprise still more perilous appears to have been attracted to him by an extraordinary conformity of tastes and temper like essex he was brave and generous but impetuous and somewhat inclined to arrogance like him a munificent patron of the genius which he loved like his friend again he received from her majesty tokens of peculiar favour which she occasionally suspended on his giving indications of an ungovernable temper or too lofty spirit and which she finally withdrew on his presuming to marry without that consent which to certain persons she could never have been induced to accord this earl of southampton was grandson of that ambitious and assuming but able and diligent statesman lord chancellor risley appointed by henry the eighth one of his executors he was father of the virtuous southampton lord treasurer and by him grandfather of the heroical and ever memorable rachel lady russell a storm drove the ill-fated armament back to plymouth where it remained wind-bound for a month and essex and raleigh posted together up to court for fresh instructions having concerted their measures they made sail for the azores and raleigh with his division arriving first attacked and captured the isle of fayal without waiting for his admiral essex was incensed and there were not wanting those about him who applied themselves to fan the flame and even urged him to bring sir walter to a court-martial but he refused and his anger soon evaporating lord thomas howard was enabled to accommodate the difference and the rivals returned to the appearance of friendship essex was destitute of the naval skill requisite for the prosperous conduct of such an enterprise owing partly to his mistakes and partly to several thwarting circumstances the west india fleet escaped him and three rich havana ships which served to defray most of the expenses were the only trophies of his island voyage from which himself and the nation had anticipated results so glorious the queen received him with manifest dissatisfaction his severity towards raleigh was blamed and it was evident that matters tended to involve him in fresh differences with robert cecil during his absence the lord admiral had been advanced to the dignity of earl of nottingham and he now discovered that by a clause in the patent this honour was declared to be conferred upon him in consideration of his good service at the taking of cadiz an action of which essex claimed to himself the whole merit to make the injury greater this title conjoined to the office of lord high admiral gave the new earl precedency of all others of the same rank essex amongst the rest to such complicated mortifications his proud spirit disdained to submit and after challenging without effect to single combat the lord admiral himself or any of his sons who would take up the quarrel the indignant favourite retired a sullen malcontent to wanstead house feigning himself sick this expedient acted on the heart of the queen with all its wonted force she showed the utmost concern for his situation chid the cecils for wronging him and soon after made him compensation for the act which had wounded him by admitting his claim to the hereditary office of earl marshal with which he was solemnly invested in december fifteen ninety seven and in right of it once more took place above the lord admiral it was during this summer that the arrogant deportment of a polish ambassador 
sent to complain of an invasion of neutral rights and the interruption given by the English navy to the trade of his master's subjects with Spain, gave occasion to a celebrated display of the spirit and the erudition of the Queen of England. Speed, the ablest of our chroniclers, gives at length her extemporal Latin reply to his harangue, adding in his quaint but expressive phrase that she, quote, thus lion-like rising, daunted the malapert orator no less with her stately port and majestical departure than with the tartness of her princely checks, and turning to the train of her attendants thus said, God's death, my lords, for that was her oath ever in anger, I have been enforced this day to scour up my old Latin that hath lain long in rusting, end quote. The same author mentions that the King of Denmark, having by his ambassador offered to mediate between England and Spain, the Queen declined the overture, adding, quote, I would have the King of Denmark and all princes Christian and heathen to know that England hath no need to crave peace, nor myself endured one hour's fear since I attained the crown thereof, being guarded with so valiant and faithful subjects. End quote. Such was the lofty tone which Elizabeth, to the end of her days, maintained towards foreign powers, none of whom had she cause to dread or motive to court. Yet her cheerfulness and fortitude were at the same time on the point of sinking under the harassing disquietudes of a petty war supported against her by an Irish chief of rebels. The head of the sept O'Neill, which she had in vain endeavoured to attach permanently to her interests by conferring upon him the dignity of Earl of Tyrone, had now for some years persevered in a resistance to her authority, which the most strenuous efforts of the civil and military governors of this turbulent and miserable island had proved inadequate to overcome. That brave officer Sir John Norris, then General of Ulster, had found it necessary to grant terms to the rebel whom he would gladly have brought in bonds to the feet of his sovereign. But the treaty thus made, this perfidious barbarian, according to his custom, observed only till the English forces were withdrawn, and he saw the occasion favourable to rise again in arms. Lord Borough, whom the Queen had appointed deputy in 1598, on which Sir John Morris, appointed to act under him, died, as it is thought, of chagrin, began his career with a vigorous attack, by which he carried, though not without considerable loss, the fort of Blackwater, the only place of strength possessed by the rebels. But before he was able to pursue further his success, death overtook him, and the government was committed for a time to the Earl of Ormond. Tyrone, nothing daunted, laid siege in his turn to Blackwater, and Sir Henry Bagnall, with the flower of the English army being sent to relieve it, sustained the most signal defeat ever experienced by an English force in Ireland. The commander himself, several captains of distinction, and fifteen hundred men were left on the field and the fort immediately surrendered to the rebel chief, who now vauntingly declared that he would accept of no terms from the Queen of England, being resolved to remain in arms till the King of Spain should send forces to his assistance. Such was the alarming position of affairs in this island at the conclusion of the year 1598. At home several incidents had intervened to claim attention. The King of France had received from Spain proposals for a peace, which the exhausted state of his country would not permit him to neglect and he had used his utmost endeavours to persuade his allies, the Queen of England and the United Provinces, to enter into the negotiations for a general pacification. But Philip II still refused to acknowledge the independence of his revolted subjects, the only basis on which the new republic would condescend to treat. Elizabeth, besides that she disdained to desert those whom she had so long and so zealously supported, was in no haste to terminate a war from which she and her subjects anticipated honour with little peril and plunder which would more than repay its expenses, and both from England and Holland agents were sent to remonstrate with Henry against the breach of treaty which he was about to commit by the conclusion of a separate peace. Elizabeth wrote to admonish him that the true sin against the Holy Ghost was ingratitude, 
of which she had so much right to accuse him, that fidelity to engagements was the first of duties and of virtues, and that union, according to the ancient apologue of the bundle of rods, was the source of strength. But to all her eloquence and all her invectives Henry had to oppose the necessity of his affairs, and the Treaty of Vervins was concluded, but not without some previous stipulations on the part of the French king, which softened considerably the resentment of his ally. Of the commissioners named by Elizabeth to arrange this business with Henry, Robert Cecil was the chief, who held before his departure many private conferences with Essex, and would not move from court till he had bound him by favours and promises to do him no injury by promoting his enemies in his absence. The Earl of Southampton, having given some offence to Her Majesty, for which she had ordered him to absent himself a while from court, took the opportunity to obtain licence to travel, and attended the secretary to France, perhaps in the character of a spy upon his motions, on behalf of Essex, who seems to have prepared him for the service by much private instruction. Quote, I acquainted you, says Rowland White, to his correspondent, with the care had to bring my Lady of Leicester to the Queen's presence. It was often granted, and she brought to the privy galleries, but the Queen found some occasion not to come. Upon Shrove Monday the Queen was persuaded to go to Mr. Controller's at the tilt-end, and there was my Lady of Leicester with a fair jewel of three hundred pounds. A great dinner was prepared by my Lady Chandos, the Queen's coach ready, and all the world expecting Her Majesty's coming, when upon a sudden she resolved not to go, and so sent word. My Lord of Essex, that had kept his chamber all the day before, in his nightgown, went up to the Queen the privy way, but all would not prevail and as yet my Lady Leicester hath not seen the Queen. It hath been better not moved, for my Lord of Essex, by importuning the Queen in these unpleasing matters, loses the opportunity he might take to do good unto his ancient friends." But on March 2nd he adds, quote, My Lady Leicester was at court, kissed the Queen's hand and her breast, and did embrace her, and the Queen kissed her. My Lord of Essex is in exceeding favour here. Lady Leicester departed from court exceedingly contented but being desirous again to come to kiss the queen's hand, it was denied, and, as I heard, some wanted unkind words given out against her." This extraordinary height of royal favour was not merely the precursor, but by the arrogant presumption with which it inspired him, a principal cause of Essex's decline, which was now fast approaching. Confident in the affections of Elizabeth, he suffered himself to forget that she was still his queen, and still a tutor. He often neglected the attentions which would have gratified her, on any occasional cause of ill-humour, he would drop slighting expressions respecting her age and person, which, if they reached her ear, could never be forgiven. On one memorable instance, he treated her with indignity openly and in her presence. A dispute had arisen between them in the presence of the Admiral, the Secretary, and the Clerk of the Signet, respecting the choice of a commander for Ireland, the Queen resolving to send Sir William Knowles, the uncle of Essex, while he vehemently supported Sir George Carew, because this person, who was haughty and boastful, had given him some offence, and he wanted to remove him out of his way. Unable either by argument or persuasion to prevail over the resolute will of Her Majesty, the favourite at last forgot himself so far as to turn his back upon her with a laugh of contempt, an outrage which she revenged after her own manner, by boxing his ears and bidding him, quote, go and be hanged, end quote. This retort so inflamed the blood of Essex that he clapped his hand on his sword, and while the Lord Admiral hastened to throw himself between them, he swore that not from Henry the Eighth himself would he have endured such an indignity, and foaming with rage he rushed out of the palace. His sincere friend the Lord Keeper immediately addressed to him a prudential letter, urging him to lose no time in seeking with humble submissions the forgiveness of his offended mistress, 
but essex replied to these well-intentioned admonitions by a letter which amid all the choler that it betrays must still be applauded both for its eloquence and for a manliness of sentiment of which few other public characters of the age appear to have been capable the lord keeper in his letter had strongly urged the religious duty of absolute submission on the part of a subject to everything that his sovereign justly or unjustly should be pleased to lay upon him to which the earl thus replies quote, but say you i must yield and submit i can neither yield myself to be guilty or this imputation laid upon me to be just i owe so much to the author of all truth as i can never yield falsehood to be truth or truth to be falsehood have i given cause ask you and take scandal when i have done no i gave no cause to take so much as fimbria's complaint against me for i did totum tellum corpore recipere i patiently bear all and sensibly feel all that i then received when this scandal was given me nay more when the vilest of all indignities are done unto me doth religion enforce me to sue or doth god require it is it impiety not to do it what cannot princes err cannot subjects receive wrong is an earthly power or authority infinite pardon me pardon me my good lord i can never subscribe to these principles let solomon's fool laugh when he is stricken let those that mean to make their profit of princes show to have no sense of princes injuries let them acknowledge an infinite absoluteness on earth that do not believe in an absolute infiniteness in heaven as for me i have received wrong and feel it my cause is good i know it and whatsoever come all the powers on earth can never show more strength than constancy in oppressing than i can show in suffering whatsoever can or shall be imposed upon me etc several other friends of essex his mother his sister and the earl of northumberland her husband urged him in like manner to return to his attendance at court and seek her majesty's forgiveness while she on her part secretly uneasy at his absence permitted certain persons to go to him as from themselves and suggest terms of accommodation sir george carew was made lord president of munster and sir william knowles who perhaps had not desired the appointment assured his nephew of his earnest wish to serve him finally this great quarrel was made up we scarcely know how and essex appeared as powerful at court as ever though some have believed and with apparent reason that from this time the sentiments of the queen for her once cherished favourite partook more of fear than of love and that confidence was never re-established between them this celebrated dispute appears to have been in some manner mingled or connected with the important question of peace or war with spain which had previously been debated with extreme earnestness between essex and burleigh the former who still thirsted for military distinction contended with the utmost vehemence of invective for the maintenance of perpetual hostility against the power of philip while the latter urged that he was now sufficiently humbled to render an accommodation both safe and honourable wearied and disgusted at length with the violence of his young antagonist the hoary minister in whom quote, old experience did attain to something like prophetic strain end quote, drew forth a prayer-book and with awful significance pointed to the text quote, men of blood shall not live out half their days end quote. but the clamour for war prevailed over the pleadings of humanity and prudence and it was left for the unworthy successor of elizabeth to patch up in haste an inconsiderate and ignoble peace in place of the solid and advantageous one which the wisdom of elizabeth and her better counsellor might at this time with ease have concluded the lord treasurer enjoyed however the satisfaction of completing for his mistress an agreement with the states of holland which provided in a satisfactory manner for the repayment of the sums which he had advanced to them and exonerated her from a considerable portion of the annual expense which she had hitherto incurred in their defence this was the last act of lord burleigh's life which terminated by a long and gradual decay on august fourth fifteen ninety eight in the seventy-eighth year of his age on the character of this great minister 
identified as it is with that of the government of elizabeth during a period of no less than forty years a few additional remarks may here suffice good sense was the leading feature of his intellect moderation of his temper his native quickness of apprehension was supported by a wonderful force and steadiness of application and by an exemplary spirit of order his morals were regular his sense of religion habitual profound and operative in his declining age harassed by diseases and cares and saddened by the loss of a beloved wife the worthy sharer of his inmost counsels he became peevish and irascible but his heart was good in all the domestic relations he was indulgent and affectionate in his friendships tender and faithful nor could he be accused of pride of treachery or of vindictiveness rising as he did by the strength of his own merits unaided by birth or connections he seems to have early formed the resolution more prudent indeed than generous of attaching himself to no political leader so closely as to be entangled in his fall thus he deserted his earliest patron protector somerset on a change of fortune and is even said to have drawn the articles of impeachment against him he extricated himself with adroitness from the ruin of northumberland by whom he had been much employed and trusted and at some expense of protestant consistency contrived to escape persecution though not to hold office under the rule of mary towards the queen his mistress his demeanour was obsequious to the brink of servility he seems on no occasion to have hesitated on the execution of any of her commands and the kind of tacit compromise by which he and leicester in spite of their mutual animosity were enabled for so long a course of years to hold divided empire in the cabinet could not have been maintained without a general acquiescence on the part of burleigh in the various malversations and oppressions of that guilty minion another accusation brought against him is that of taking money for ecclesiastical preferments of the truth of this charge sufficient evidence might be brought from original documents but an apologist would urge with justice that his royal mistress who virtually delegated to him the most laborious duties of the office of head of the church both expected and desired that emolument should thence accrue to him and to the persons under him thus we find it stated that bishop fletcher had quote, bestowed in allowances and gratifications to diverse attendants about her majesty since his preferment to the see of london the sum of thirty one hundred pounds or thereabouts which money was given by him for the most part of it by her majesty's direction and special appointment the ministers of a sovereign who scrupled not to accept of bribes from parties engaged in lawsuits for the exertion of her own interest with her judges could scarcely be expected to exhibit much delicacy on this head in fact the venality of the court of elizabeth was so gross that no public character appears even to have professed a disdain of the influence of gifts and bribes and we find lord burleigh inserting the following among rules moral and prudential drawn up for the use of his son robert when young quote, be sure to keep some great man thy friend but trouble him not for trifles compliment him often present him with many yet small gifts and of little charge and if thou have cause to bestow any great gratuity let it be some such thing as may be daily in his sight otherwise in this ambitious age thou shalt remain as a hop without a pole live in obscurity and be made a football for every insulting companion in his office of lord treasurer this minister is allowed to have behaved with perfect integrity and to have permitted no oppression on the subject wisely and honourably maintaining that nothing could be for the advantage of a sovereign which in any way injured his reputation his conduct in this high post added to a general opinion of his prudence and virtue caused his death to be sincerely deplored and his memory to be constantly held in higher esteem by the people than that of any former minister of any english prince elizabeth was deeply sensible that to her the loss of such a servant counsellor and friend was indeed irreparable contrary to her custom she wept much and retired for a time from all company 
and it is said that to the end of her life she could never hear or pronounce his name without tears. Although she was not sufficiently mistress of herself in those fits of rage to which she was occasionally liable, to refrain from treating him with a harshness and contempt which sometimes moved the old man even to weeping, her behaviour towards him satisfactorily evinced on the whole her deep sense of his fidelity and various merits as a minister, and her affection for him as a man. He was perhaps the only person of humble birth whom she condescended to honour with the garter. She constantly made him sit in her presence, on account of his being troubled with the gout, and would pleasantly tell him, quote, "'My lord, we make much of you, not for your bad legs, but for your good head.'" In his occasional fits of melancholy and retirement, she would woo him back to her presence by kind and playful letters, and she absolutely refused to accept of the resignation which his bodily infirmities led him to tender two or three years before his death. She constantly visited him when confined by sickness. On one of these occasions, being admonished by his attendant to stoop as she entered at his chamber door, she replied, quote, "'For your master's sake I will, though not for the King of Spain.'" His lady was much in Her Majesty's favour, and frequently in attendance on her and it has been surmised that her husband found her an important auxiliary in maintaining his influence. Elizabeth had the weakness, frequent among princes, and not unusual with private individuals, of hating her heir, a sentiment which gained ground upon her daily, in proportion as the infirmities of age admonished her of her approach towards the destined limit of her long and splendid course. Notwithstanding the respectful observances by which James exerted himself to disguise his impatience for her death, particular incidents occurred from time to time to aggravate her suspicion and exasperate her animosity. And the present year was productive of some remarkable circumstances of this nature. The Queen had long been displeased at the indulgence exercised by the King of Scots towards certain Catholic noblemen, by whom a treasonable correspondence had been carried on with Spain, and a very dangerous conspiracy formed against his person and government. Such misplaced lenity, combined with certain negotiations which he carried on with the Catholic princes of Europe, she regarded as evincing a purpose to secure to himself an interest with the popish party in england as well as scotland which she could not view without anxiety and her worst apprehensions were now confirmed by the information which reached her from two different quarters that james in a very respectful letter to the pope had given him assurance under his own hand of his resolution to treat his catholic subjects with indulgence at the same time requesting that his holiness would give a cardinal's hat to drummond bishop of vaison Almost at the same time, one Valentine Thomas, apprehended in London for a theft, accused the King of Scots of some evil designs against herself. Explanations, however, being demanded, James solemnly disavowed the letter to the Pope, which he treated as a forgery and imposture, though circumstances which came out several years afterwards render the King's veracity in this point very questionable. To the charge brought by Thomas, he returned a denial, probably better founded, and required that the accuser should be arraigned in presence of some commissioner whom he should send. But Elizabeth, less jealous of his dealings with the papal party, now that she no longer dreaded a Spanish invasion, judged it more prudent to bury the whole matter in silence, and resumed, in the tone of friendship, the correspondence which she regularly maintained with her kinsmen. End of section 43